Good morning to everyone once again. All right, so we'll come to the second meeting here, and uh, this is a common session, uh, a special session for spiritual gifts. So all of us understand what spiritual gifts are. We know what uh, the spiritual gifts are that the New Testament talks about. And this may perhaps help us identify what our spiritual gifts are as well. And that is very significant because we need to build up the body of Christ. Each one of us in the body, in the local body is important. And so we need to use our gifts to build up the body of Christ for the edification of the body. And so it's of paramount importance that you and I know what our gifts are. So we will do a very straightforward, very simple study today on spiritual gifts. And like I said, it's a very important topic, a very significant topic in the New Testament. Uh, several writers addressed about these spiritual gifts. For example, Paul talks a lot about it. Uh, Peter talked about it. Um, so we need to look at what they're saying about spiritual gifts. And also, the other New Testament writers, although they did not directly address the topic of spiritual gifts, they allude to it here and there, and uh, they come up as well in their writings, albeit in a very subtle way. So we need to understand what these spiritual gifts are. Okay, so as we listen to this, uh, I want you all to take a pen and a paper, please. And while we make a list of the gifts here, it's my plea, it's my request to all of us that... We write down, how can I serve the church or how can I serve CBF, very specifically here, if God has endowed me with this particular gift? How can I serve CBF if God has endowed me with this particular gift that is being discussed here? And so we'll go through the list of gifts and if you think you have a particular gift or if you don't think you have a particular thing as well, just write down how you can serve uh, the church, if you had that gift, you never know, it could be a dominant gift, which might come out later on as you start exercising it. All right. Uh, so that is uh, an introductory comment that I wanted to give. Another thing I want to say is towards the end of the study, uh, perhaps for five or seven minutes, we'll have a question answer session. So please ask questions that are relevant to the topic. Um, because we will be dealing with uh, uh, spiritual gifts in particular. And I'm not going to get into um, the workings of the Holy Spirit in relation to man in the Old Testament, uh, in relation to Jesus, or in relation to the intertestamental period and things like that. We're just specifically talking about uh, spiritual gifts, right? Uh, that's one thing. Uh, second thing is, well, after we finish this and after we finish the question-answer session, we will also uh, give you a brief description of uh, the survey that you'll be filling. We will send you a survey on the groups, both in English and in Hindi. You may pick up uh, whatever you're comfortable with. It's been well translated, uh, thanks to the efforts of Brother Jerry and Brother Sean. So, um, and uh, so we'll send you the gifts. Uh, we'll send you the uh, survey of the gifts, and uh, I will explain towards the end of the session as to how you need to fill it. All right. All right. So uh, we have a good turnout here. Thank you for that, and. Uh, request all of you to sit here prayerfully with a heart of prayer to see what the Lord has to speak to us this morning about spiritual gifts and uh, make notes as well. And like I said, uh, keep asking this question. If I have this gift, if the Lord has endowed me with this gift, how do I use it for the edification of the body? 
to build up the body of Christ in our case here CBF in particular right so let me share my screen and uh, we will get going about spiritual gifts okay I've entitled this one second understanding and using your spiritual gifts understanding and using your spiritual gifts so first of all we need to understand what spiritual gifts are as defined by the New Testament and we need to identify what our spiritual gifts are and we need to start using them why we'll talk about that so first of all let's look at the basis and the nature of spiritual gifts now all of us may have heard about spiritual gifts right from our childhood you know we all have been various churches different churches in different parts of the country and the world so we certainly if we were in church would have come across this word spiritual gifts and we certainly would have seen the manifestation of it the usage of it by people who have gifts but we need to understand what the spiritual gifts are all right um, so I'm going to be looking at here this is how we'll do it we will not define it right away because that would be wrong to do so what I'll do is I will look at a few words prominent words that the New Testament uses in relation to spiritual gifts in relation to the Holy Spirit to see what those words mean so that by the time we are through those words you and I will have at least a basic understanding of what spiritual gifts are and having done that we will define what spiritual gifts are okay so that's the way it's going to be so listen to me very carefully please so we look at the basis and nature of spiritual gifts the first word that is used in the New Testament the most common the most famous word that is used in the New Testament for spiritual gifts is the word charisma it is the word charisma it is used in several places in the New Testament for example Romans chapter 12 uh, 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul says you don't like any gift as you look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul makes a list of gifts uh, 1 Timothy 4 14 where uh, you know by the laying on of hands uh, of the council of elders Timothy recognizes gift uh, so 1 Peter 4 10 the same word is used about serving gifts and speaking gifts so the most common word that is used in the New Testament for spiritual gifts is the word charisma it is translated by all translations all good major translations in the English language as gift and only once in the NASB it is translated as spiritual gift 1 Timothy 4 14 is the only instance but generally it's a gift or a spiritual gift but if you have to literally translate what charisma in Greek means it means gifts of grace gifts of grace right now we understand right away what spiritual gifts are at least a bit of what they are from this word the literal translation of charisma means gifts of grace which means they're given to us by his grace they're given to us in his grace we don't work towards them it is not because we are more spiritual than the others that certain gifts are given to us all gifts are given to each and every individual by the grace of God and that's why they called gifts of grace 
Well, a gift itself is something that is given free of cost. A gift of grace is much more. We don't work towards it. We don't have to uh, you know, earn our way to get those gifts. It is given to us, uh, they are given to us by His grace. All right. So from the first word, we realize that the New Testament talks about them as gifts given by grace. The word is charisma. The second word, okay, before I get there, I also want to help us understand the other uses of the word charisma in the New Testament. And you'll see the close linkage uh, among the usages here. The word charisma is also used for the gift of salvation. Now you're seeing the connection already there, right? Uh, salvation is a gift. We don't work towards it. Uh, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, isn't it? So Romans 5.15 and the passages that are listed there, they use the word charisma to refer to salvation. It is a gift of God. Romans 1.11 uses that in a very particular way. It is, It uses uh, the word to refer to the truth that is imparted through human teaching or human instruction. Okay, um, so Romans 1.11 uses the word charisma to talk about truth that is imparted in the context of teaching, human instruction. 1 Corinthians 7 uses the word charisma to talk about celibacy in particular and generally about marriage as well. That's probably one of the reasons why some Bible teachers, some scholars include celibacy as a spiritual gift in the list of the spiritual gifts that the New Testament talks about. So it is the same word used there and that's why they pick it up perhaps. Celibacy, in that context, the word used there is the word charisma. The last way in which uh, charisma is used also in the New Testament is the gracious deliverances in answer to the prayers of fellow believers. Now, if you pray for me and I'm delivered from something, the New Testament in this context, 2 Corinthians 1.11, talks of that as charisma. It is a gracious deliverance. So you're already seeing the, uh, the usage of the word charisma in the New Testament. It is all about grace. It is by the grace of God that we have been endowed with the gifts that we have been given. And not on the basis of works, not on the basis of our abilities or natural talents, or anything like that. All right, so that is charisma, the first word used there. The second word that is used in the New Testament in relation to spiritual gifts is the word diaconia. That's from where you get the word deacon. Okay, so diaconia refers to a role that is done in service of others. And the Greek word is used in 1 Corinthians 12.5, where Paul is listing out several spiritual gifts in the context. All right, now listen to this very carefully, please. The word used in relation to spiritual gifts is the word diaconia, which means it is a role or a place of service to others. Now notice here, we see very clearly from this word that a spiritual gift is not to serve myself. A spiritual gift is not to make a name for myself. A spiritual gift is done or used in service of others, in service to others. So your gift is for me and my gift is for you. My gift is not for myself and your gift is not for yourself. Let's remember that, okay? So it is a role done in service to others. In fact, the literal word here, the Greek here, uh, actually means 
waiting at the table to serve others. So I'm actually waiting with my gifts to serve you, and you are waiting with your gifts to serve me, all of us doing that to build up the body of Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture, right? So diaconia, which means service done to others. Peter uses that in a slightly different flavor. In 1 Peter 4.11, he uses the same Greek word, and it is used to refer to a category of gifts. They're called service gifts. Paul sorry, Peter categorizes in that context the gifts into two, speaking gifts and service gifts. We'll look at that in a while. So uh, the word used there by Peter is the word diaconia, which means it's a category of gifts that serve in the church. Uh, major translations, NIV translates this word diaconia as service. Um, NASB, New American Standard, translates that as ministries. Both mean the same, almost the same. Okay, so first one is charisma. The second one is diaconia. The third one is the word energema. Now, yes, you're right. The word energy comes from there. Uh, it refers to the energy that is operating through the gifts. It is a divine enablement. We don't do that in the flesh. We cannot generate that in the flesh, and we ought not to. It is the enablement, empowerment, the energy that is operating to the gifts through the gifts, and that comes from this Holy Spirit. Uh, you can read that in uh, 1 Corinthians 12:6 and Romans 12:3. Both of them uh, use the word energema. The translations are: it is the workings of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that is NIV. The effects that are seen. That is NASB, and ESV calls that activities. Okay. So energema is workings of the spirit, effects, and the activities. That's the third word. Uh, fourthly is the word pneumaticos. Uh, the Greek word pneuma is there as part of that. Uh, it refers to the spirit as the source of the gifts. The spirit as a source of the gifts. 1 Corinthians 12.1 says that the spirit gives each one according to his will. It is based on his sovereignty, his will, that he gives gifts. We don't desire them or we don't request for them or plead for them. We may do that, but the Spirit will give the gifts that he wants us, uh, that he wants in our lives. All right, so the, the word pneumaticos is translated as spiritual gifts by NASB, but a more literal translation would be things of the Spirit or spiritual things or, or simply spirituals. So, what have we gathered so far from these four words? The source of the gifts is the Holy Spirit. The energy, the empowerment for the usage comes from the Holy Spirit and must come from the Holy Spirit, not from the flesh. Number three, they are gifts of grace. We don't deserve any of them. We don't work for any of them. He gives us in His grace. Number four, they are for service, diaconia. It is not for myself. It is not for self-aggrandizement. It is not to make a name for myself. It is not for you to make a name for yourself either. It is for service to others, to build up the body of Christ, to serve at the tables so that others are built up. The last word uh, used there is the word doma. It is only used in one context. Uh, that is in Ephesians 4. Uh, it is not used in relation to the Holy Spirit directly, but it refers to a gift given by Christ to the church. The ascended Christ gave gifts to the church. 
uh, you know the context Ephesians 4 verses 7 and 8 okay so uh, why is it done Paul goes to the end of that section and he says this in verse 12 it is to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ Christ gave gifts to the church so that the saints in the church can be equipped for the work of ministry it is also to build up the body of Christ that way okay so five words five major words used in the New Testament about spiritual gifts and we gathered several things just by looking at the root words okay now having gathered all these uh, details from the root words used by the New Testament writers to talk about spiritual gifts let's now define what those spiritual gifts are okay is everybody on the same page here uh, am I too fast too slow uh, Ajit feedback please too fast yeah, too slow too Greek too Greek okay I can't help that okay uh, the next one well let's define let's define a spiritual gift this is uh, Wayne Grudem's definition of it okay uh, very simple one a spiritual gift is an ability is any ability he says that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church almost the same thing that we gathered from those five words a spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church Charles Ryrie says this a spiritual gift is any ability God given the phrase reminds us that Christ and the Spirit are the givers of gifts and the phrase for service seeks to capture the emphasis in all the central passages that gifts are to be used in serving the body of Christ so once again let's just summarize all that we studied from the words and from these definitions uh, the source of the spiritual gifts is the Holy Spirit and Christ as well you could say that nothing wrong from the New Testament but primarily uh, in most passages it is the Holy Spirit who gives the gifts according to his will and we'll talk about the slight difference later when we have time number two it is given out of his grace we don't work towards it it is not because we are better than others or we are worse than others uh, it is given completely based on his grace and in his sovereignty number three it is given not for ourselves but to serve others it is for the service of others again let me say my gift is for you your gift is for me my gift is not for myself and your gift is not for yourself it is to expend ourselves through the gift uh, by serving the body of Christ number four we saw that um, uh, it is uh, it is for the building up of the body to equip the saints uh, it is a gift given to the church and uh, what is the other one that we saw uh, it operates through the gifts uh, through the energy that uh, the Spirit provides right all right so uh, these are the things that we gathered about uh, about spiritual gifts and that is the definition of spiritual gifts so I hope it's clear about what spiritual gifts are um, and uh, I think we can move forward because if I pause for too long I don't think we'll have time to cover the entire thing truths about spiritual gifts I want to talk a few things about spiritual gifts before we get to the details about each gift number one spiritual gifts are essential and important for the health of the church they are essential and important for the health of the church Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 1 
As he begins the section on spiritual gifts, he says this, I do not want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts because they are essential, they are important for the health of the church. Now notice all these things. Because like I said earlier, gifts are used to minister to others and it is to build up the body of Christ into maturity into the person of Christ. And therefore, they are essential. Otherwise, without the gifts, uh, the body may not be built up. They are essential. They are important for the health of the church. If there is a church where nobody is using their spiritual gifts, the health of the church would be poor, would be shallow. But if there's a gift where everybody in the spirit is using their spiritual gifts, uh, that could be a mature church. Right? So spiritual gifts are essential and important for the health of the church. And Paul rarely uses this phrase in the New Testament. And he uses the phrase especially to talk about something that is very important. The phrase is, I do not want you to be ignorant. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he uses the phrase to talk about what happens to the uh, believers who have died before the coming of the Lord and the rapture. I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. So Paul uses that phrase in his, in his letters, in his epistles, to highlight something that is important that the people that he's writing to, and all of us, by extension, need to know about. So spiritual gifts are essential and important for the health of the church. Second thing, every believer has at least one spiritual gift. Every believer at least has one spiritual gift. So we see this in Ephesians 4, 7. Uh, each one of us has been given a gift. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Each one of us again has been given a spiritual gift. If you're a believer in Christ, you would have at least one spiritual gift. It may be dormant. You may not have discovered it yet. And that's the purpose of this session as well, for us to identify at least um, some of the gifts that we have. But every believer has been given at least one spiritual gift. Number three, like we said, the Holy Spirit is the source of these gifts. He gives according to his will. We don't have time to read all those verses, but I'll show you the major passages of the New Testament on spiritual gifts. There are four major passages, easy to remember. Uh, so you can go back and uh, after the session, perhaps after your lunch, uh, you can read those four passages and you'll understand what I'm talking about here. So uh, the Holy Spirit is the source of these gifts. We don't seek them. Uh, we don't spend hours in prayer or days in prayer to get them. But the Holy Spirit in his sovereignty gives the gifts to us uh, as he wants to use us in his body with those gifts. Okay. And although the New Testament is not very explicit about it, uh, when we look at all of the New Testament writings, we can confidently say that the Holy Spirit gives us gifts at the moment of salvation. We don't have to wait or tarry for them. So when you're, when you're saved, the moment the Spirit comes to indwell you, you're also given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And that includes spiritual gifts as well. Number four, the spiritual gifts are not natural or acquired abilities. Now, we ought not to confuse natural or acquired abilities with spiritual gifts. Now, there could be some overlap here and there, but spiritual gifts are those given sovereignly by the Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ and energized by the Spirit. Not the case with natural abilities. For example, some people have uh, 
a born talent to sing it would have come by birth or with birth you know the moment they're born perhaps you know they can start singing well when they can sing uh, so those are natural abilities that god has given in his sovereignty yes but they're not spiritual gifts so there are other things that we pick up on the way for example the ability to drive or the ability to swim or the ability to play the guitar all those things are natural abilities acquired abilities um, and some of us can even pick up the acquired ability of singing as well not me but some of you uh, so uh, so those things are different from a spiritual gift spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit for the edification of the body of Christ and energized by the Spirit okay number five very important uh, there is no hierarchy in spiritual gifts there is no hierarchy in spiritual gifts all gifts are equally important equally necessary and ought to be equally honored let me say that again all gifts are equally important equally necessary for the body of Christ and if you're honoring anything you ought to honor all gifts now I do understand that there are certain gifts that are out there in public for example teaching and preaching and uh, you know exhorting um, things like that right shepherding it's it's out there in public and uh, while people might desire such gifts and people might want to be out there in public doing such things as well that that is the desire in the heart of man usually but we ought not to elevate one gift over another because in the new testament that is not done there is no hierarchy in spiritual gifts all gifts are equally important equally essential for the health of the church and the body of christ and ought to be equally honored as well which should tell us that we don't have to necessarily desire after or only look for the gifts where a platform is given to you we can serve even with the background gifts which we'll talk about because all gifts are equally important all gifts are equally essential for the health of the body of Christ and all gifts ought to be equally honored and even if we don't get honor here on earth the Lord is going to honor us and reward us for the way we use the spiritual gifts in the background as well number six spiritual gifts are no sign or guarantee of spirituality this is absolutely important uh, in our usage of the spiritual gifts and first of all for our understanding of spiritual gifts just because somebody is displaying his gifts or manifesting his gifts in public it does not mean he or she is more spiritual than the others spiritual gifts are no sign or guarantee of spirituality something else says and that is called the fruit of the spirit uh, if we have time we can differentiate between the gifts of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit and if any question comes up we can handle that but for the moment uh, character or the inner quality the real spirituality is seen in your fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness you have a song right in Sunday school so this is the fruit of the spirit and that need uh, that is the measure of our spirituality of our character not the usage of spiritual gifts now uh, I want to be careful in saying this because it is perfectly all right and the right way to use a spiritual gift 
while working on your inner character. And that's the way it needs to go on as well. But externally, spiritual gifts are no sign or no guarantee of spirituality. I'll tell you one example here. Uh, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and in chapter 3 he talks about carnal Christians. And you know the reason why he's talking about that to the Corinthian church. But in the very same book he, he lists a whole lot of spiritual gifts that are, that are just, you know, dazzling to behold. So, but he calls them carnal Christians. So the point is even carnal Christians can exercise spiritual gifts. Because gifts are given to us, not on the basis of our spirituality, like I said before, it is given to us because of His grace. And the usage of gift does not necessarily mean a sign of our spirituality or we are more spiritual than the others. The real measure of spirituality is elsewhere where it is seen in the character that needs to be developed or being conformed more and more to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is manifestly seen in the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, the next one. The gifts of the Spirit, oh, there it is. The gifts of the Spirit are distinct from the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, I talked about this briefly. I don't think I need to uh, stress on that. Lastly, you can have a spiritual gift and not be using it. Okay, uh, Paul talks about that to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.14. So uh, you could have a spiritual gift today that you don't know about because it's been dormant and you have never used it. Uh, you may identify it through the survey perhaps, but you will definitely be able to identify it if you start using it in different areas. Uh, get involved in the church. Start, start getting involved in various areas and you will discover spiritual gifts automatically. And that's the best way to go about it. Service are just indicative, but uh, the Lord can use that means as well. And we hope that is the way it will be taken today as well. Okay, so eight things we looked at, the truths about uh, spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are essential and important to the health of the church. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit is a source of these gifts. Spiritual gifts are not natural or acquired abilities. They are totally different from them, although there is some overlap. For example, somebody who is a natural speaker can be used by the Holy Spirit with the gift of teaching as well. Okay, So there can be an overlap there, but these two are two different things as well. We need to understand that. There is no hierarchy in spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are no sign or guarantee of spirituality. The gifts of the Spirit are distinct from the fruit of the Spirit. And you can have a spiritual gift and not be using it. Okay, so any questions so far just uh, or any clarification needed? Because uh, I'm doing this because I want all of us to understand what we are talking about here. Any questions so far, please? Just I'll pause for 30 seconds, I think, to take one question perhaps. Okay, all right, that's good. We'll move on. Yes, uh, Raven. When when uh, we look at uh, uh, five, there is no hierarchy in spiritual gifts. Uh, maybe you'll take this up later. But how would we interpret a passage like First Corinthians twelve, the last part? And God has placed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles. And yes. Uh, do you think it's a hierarchy in the nature of gifts or? In the uh, in the timing of things that God placed there, uh, the reason I'm wondering if it's hierarchy is verse 31. He says, "But you should be eager to desire the greater gifts." Yes, that is in the context of uh, what follows there uh, in terms of love 
and especially in terms of 1 Corinthians 14 where prophecy that is more edifying to the church is seen as a better thing than tongues used in a wrong way. So a misused gift is compared with a gift that ought to be used right that will edify the body of Christ. So in that context he said desire better gift. That, that is the context, not that there is uh, there is a hierarchy in spiritual gifts. Okay, so greater and lesser is in terms of usage of the gifts more than the quality or it, it is it is it is using the gift to build up the body of Christ in the right way, which the Corinthians were not doing, and that's the whole context of one Corinthians twelve through fourteen. Cool, thanks. Yeah. Okay. All right, anything else? Okay, I'll move forward. I'll take the questions later then. Um, need to cover some some uh, distance here. So, New Testament list of spiritual gifts. Okay, so like I said, there are four passages or four prominent passages in the New Testament that talk about spiritual gifts. Okay, so two twelves and two fours. Easy to remember. Two twelves and two fours. Romans chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, okay? Uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. I've given the verses here, and uh, I've listed all the gifts that are mentioned in each passage, okay? Um, now, some of these we can't be absolutely sure and pinpoint what the apostles are talking about or what Paul is talking about um, because Paul wrote all these three major passages Romans 1 Corinthians and Ephesians Peter only just makes a distinction there um, so we can't pinpoint every single gift uh, we'll get to that but perhaps looking at the context we can uh, just about understand to a good measure what those gifts might be okay um, so here are the lists that I have listed um, we don't need to count it. I've not counted it myself, but uh, looking at the overlap, usually uh, New Testament scholars say that there might be 22 to 24 gifts based on how you count them. Uh, but in any case, uh, the numbers could vary as well. Okay, so uh, I hope you took a good look at this. Uh, I will move to the next slide. Um, now, Categories of spiritual gifts. Now, the New Testament does not categorize spiritual gifts into various things. Yes, Peter does that into uh, serving gifts and speaking gifts, but uh, you don't have any special categorization or systematiz uh, systematization done by the New Testament writers. There is a reason for that. But for our understanding, uh, I'm going to do that into three categories uh, just for easier remembrance and, to, and for all of us to be able to easily commit this to memory. Um, now, uh, there are several ways of categorizing things, but I think I've taken the easiest one that perhaps, you know, jumps out of the pages of the New Testament. Um, one is called the support gifts or foundational gifts. I wanted a word with yes, sorry, S, so I, I use the word support, uh, foundational gifts, apostleship, prophecy, evangelism, shepherding, and teaching, okay? Then you have the service gifts. This is not to say that the support gifts don't serve or the sign gifts don't serve. I said uh, the New Testament is clear that it's all for service, but this is just a type of categorization for our easier understanding. Okay, um, So don't read too much into this. Uh, so service gifts, administration, exhortation, 
Faith giving helps showing mercy. Next one is sign gifts. Distinguishing of spirits, miracles, healings, tongues, interpretation of tongues. Um, we call them sign gifts for a purpose and we'll get to that when we actually get to those gifts. So three S's, support gifts, service gifts, and sign gifts. Uh, there are other categorizations, but uh, this is just for easier understanding. So we'll just go with one, support gifts, service gifts, and sign gifts. Moving forward, okay? Description of spiritual gifts. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna look at some spiritual gifts or most of the gifts that are mentioned here and uh, and what i'll do is i will briefly explain them it is 12 20. Um, i hope i can go till 12 50 and finish it and then we can take questions and perhaps finish it by one but if it goes till 110 just bear with me for today please and pardon me uh, we need to finish this and uh, this is important okay so the first thing that we look at is apostleship um, there is a pattern i'm going to follow first of all i'm going to show us where in the New Testament it is found, the root word and what the word means. And the reason why we're looking at the root word is because we will exactly know what the New Testament writers meant in the context. The translations could differ and that's why we're using the root word. Okay, and then uh, the definition of it from the root words and I will explain some of the characteristics as well of the gifts and how it is used in the church right now and how you can use the gift in the church right now as well so this is the way it's going to go uh, so look uh, keep the pattern in your mind and write down uh, some notes as well as we go along apostleship uh, is given in the list of 1 corinthians 12 and ephesians 4 in two passages okay um, the greek word that is used there in that context is the word apostolos and that comes from apo meaning from and stello meaning I send, or in other words, it means sent one or sent forth. It is a delegate who has been sent from a higher authority to accomplish a task or a messenger sent by a higher authority on a mission, um, like it says here with orders from his superior or the simple translation there is an apostle. Okay, or an apostle means a sent one. The Lord Jesus Christ himself sent these men in the New Testament. Paul is one of the apostles, the 12 apostles. We have the disciples of Jesus, right? These are apostles whom the Lord sent out with a mission, with orders from the Lord himself. Apostolos is the word. The definition for it, uh, it is the divinely ordained gift. Apostle or apostleship is a divinely ordained gift to establish the church on earth by divine revelation. Unquestioned authority. Now you couldn't, you couldn't in the New Testament times question the authority of an apostle because whenever they gave the word of God, they were inerrant. They brought the word of God to the church. Paul tells the Thessalonians this way. He says, I'm so thankful to you that when I actually preach the word of uh, when I actually preach the word to you, you took it not as word of men, but for what it really is, the very word of God. And that's why Paul, in most of the epistles, he says, "Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus." What does that mean? I'm writing from a place of authority. And what I'm writing is authoritative over the churches. 
and these men were authenticated by miracles okay um, so it is a divinely ordained gift to establish the church and that's why Ephesians 2.20 calls apostles the foundation of the church uh, to establish the church on earth by divine revelation they would get revelation and they would give the revelation to the people of God as well they were sent men to establish the church um, unquestioned authority and authenticated by miracles now how it works in church today we can understand uh, let me first of all explain the strict definition of the apostle in the New Testament uh, he should have been chosen by Christ directly um, he's somebody who receives direct revelation from God himself his teachings possessed unquestioned authority as commandments from God you see that that's why the apostles wrote the New Testament documents that were sent to the churches um, there was no error in their teachings and that's why what they wrote was error-free inerrant documents and that's why the New Testament as well is inerrant Word of God they exercise divine authority over not one church or two churches but over all churches they laid the foundation of the church they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ and that's why Paul keeps harping on this once in a while have I not seen the Lord Jesus Christ I have and he recounts the story of Damascus uh, the road to Damascus where uh, where he saw uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, bodily uh, risen from the dead uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a glorious manner where he comes and gives him that commission okay so uh, so uh, the reason why he gives that is because he wants to say that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ um, so these are some of the these are some of the credentials that an apostle uh, should have and by the very definition itself that the New Testament gives it was restricted right to the first century in that strict sense of the word or to the time when the church was being established in the first century or to the time before the finishing of the canon of the New Testament okay so uh, there are no apostles today in the sense the strict sense of the New Testament gives uh, apostles died out in the first century but since we are taking a loose definition today of a sent one uh, we can say a missionary we can call him a missionary uh, somebody who goes to do cross-cultural missions um, somebody who goes from India to another country and wants to plant a church and that gift could be something like a missionary gift all right but the strict apostolic gift that the New Testament talks about who are the foundations of the church that does not exist any longer it ceased uh, or it stopped right in the first century the, with the dying of the last apostle uh, John uh, who leaned on the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ the apostleship died okay so but how it works in church today when you stretch it by extension you could say a missionary is also a sent one uh, in a loose sense you could take it that way okay so that's uh, that's apostleship the next one is prophecy the uh, prophecy is listed for us in one one two three passages uh, Romans 12 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 Romans 12 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 okay uh, that's the Greek word used it's prophetia 
comes from the word pro, which means forth, and femi means I speak, which means speaking forth or telling forth the word of God. Uh, prophecy means forth telling and not always foretelling. It means to proclaim in public and not necessarily proclaim uh, events prior hand, although that is part of forth telling. It is not all of it. So the moment we think about prophecy, we always think of it in terms of uh, foretelling of events. Yes, that is definitely a component of it, but the word prophecy generally in the New Testament means that uh, it is speaking forth the word of God in public, um, especially warning people uh, of the coming judgment, exhorting people to repent. That was what prophets did, even in the New Testament times. Uh, okay. Uh, prophets usually spoke the uninterrupted message of God. So definition, it is the God-given ability to declare God's revelation to his people in their own language. Um, it could be a message from God, which could be a judgment or an exhortation to repent and things like that. Um, it is a God-given ability to declare God's revelation to his people in their own language. Um, like I said, uh, it was usually forth-telling, which is proclaiming God's word. Paul did proclaim God's word uh, by preaching from the Old Testament as well, which is the already revealed word of God to him. Um, but there was some foretelling as well in the New Testament times in the first century. Um, Paul talks about that in, in 1 Corinthians uh, and all those passages. Uh, the, de the declarations given by the prophets uh, as recorded in the word of God are 100% accurate and they would come true as well because they got a word from God and they gave a word of exhortation or edification or consolation or teaching or judgment to people. Uh, often uh, a message from a prophet could have evangelistic results as well in the church in the New Testament times. Um, how it works in the church today? Obviously, there is no direct revelation from God that we receive on a regular basis because the canon is closed. We have the very word of God in our hands. Uh, it is closed and we ought not to add anything to the word of God. Uh, how God speaks to us today is primarily through the word. So uh, how it works today in church is this way. It is through preaching. Revelational prophecy has stopped or ceased with the completion of the canon. But today prophesying can come to mean proclamation or reiteration of the written word of God. So when somebody stands up to proclaim, to proclaim the word of God uh, and reiterate and explain and exhort people, console people, edify people, that is an extension of prophetic uh, ministry as well. It is not revelational. It is a reiteration of what God has already revealed in its fullness. And we're just reiterating what God has revealed and explaining to people. So that's preaching. Uh, the second thing is non-revelatory public proclamation for the edification of the church. And that is prophecy as well. And that's how it is used in the church today. Okay, uh, moving on very quickly. What is the time? Uh, 12.30. Okay. The third one, evangelism or evangelist. Uh, I want to look at it as evangelism um, because uh, an evangelist has the gift of evangelism. So uh, it is just used in one um, passage. It is Ephesians 4.11. And uh, 
the Greek word used is the word euangelistus. Um, so it means a preacher of the gospel, an evangelist. Uh, this noun is found only three times in the New Testament, and I've given the references there, okay? Um, it, is, it means somebody who proclaims the good news of the gospel, proclaims the good news of how your sins can be forgiven, how you can right, get, uh, get right with God, how you can obtain the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. So it is, it is somebody who goes and proclaims the gospel. A definition, it is the ability both to proclaim the gospel with ease, resulting in conversions. Uh, I do realize that conversion at the end of the day is in the hands of God, uh, but this is a gift that usually results uh, in conversions uh, and, and to train others effectively to share Christ with the lost, okay? So it is to both proclaim the gospel with ease, resulting in conversions. Now, you would have seen, um, perhaps we are traveling by train or, or of plane. Uh, there are some people, some brothers or sisters who travel with us who can strike up a conversation with ease with a stranger sitting next to them and they can share the gospel. And before the flight lands or the train reaches the destination, they would have shared the gospel and they'd be discussing that. The, the gospel fluency, perhaps they have the gift of evangelism. Although all of us, are called to do it, uh, people with that gift can do it with ease and confidence because that is, that is energized by the Spirit. Okay, that's the definition of it. Uh, so it is, to, uh, it is the ability to present the gospel easily, confidently, clearly. Um, there is a conviction in the hearts of such men and women for the lost, a deep burden and conviction for the lost. And they, wherever they go, they keep looking for opportunities to share the gospel, to talk to somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the witnesses usually uh, end up, usually, of course, in the sovereignty of God, all this is done, end up bringing and drawing people to the church or to Christ. Um, and they also have the ability to share the gospel with as many people as possible and as many kinds of people as possible. Um, and uh, one more thing is, uh, we see from experience that such people find joy in doing that. Uh, when they share the gospel, they're joyous. They want to they wanna talk to others about it and say, you know, I, you know, I got to share the gospel. The Lord gave me this opportunity. So, so there is a joy in their heart. The gift of evangelism. Um, ministry opportunities, uh, training Christians in evangelism and methods, and uh, not so much methods, but at least their experiences of how they share Christ and, and the joy that they have and, and, and uh, the joy they have in seeing people come to Christ. Uh, if, they, if he's a preacher, it is preaching at evangelistic outreaches. Uh, we know we have some names in our minds. They preach in big conventions. They preach the gospel very effectively and people come to know the Lord as well. Speaking at camps, university campuses, or door-to-door -door evangelism, you know, distributing tracts, going to hospitals and sharing the gospel with people who are on their uh, sick beds, death beds, uh, institutional visitations like, you know, perhaps mentally challenged people, uh, institutions like that, showing films, uh, home Bible studies. I know of I know of a couple of people right here in Babu Sapalia who do evangelistic home Bible studies and draw their friends to listen to uh, the the gospel giving tracts, etc., etc. So those are the ministry opportunities of evangelism, of the gift of evangelism. The next one is called shepherding. Um, 
people say pastor teachers i think it's pastors and teachers and there is a, there is a reason why it is translated that way um it's pastors and teachers so it is talking about a one particular gift of shepherding uh, it is, it is, there's a format or a syntax in the New Testament. I don't want to get into the details, but that's the reason why we translate that as shepherds or pastors and teachers. It means that one is included in the other. All shepherds are teachers, but, on all, but not all teachers are shepherds. Let me say that again. All shepherds are teachers, but not all teachers are shepherds. So this is a specially enabled gift of shepherding that also includes the gift of teaching. That is mentioned only in one place in the New Testament, and that is Ephesians 4.11. The Greek word used there is the word poimen, translated as pastor, only in this context in the New Testament. In fact, uh, the word poimen is not what you are, but what you do. Okay, So that's why in the New Testament, only once in, in one context, it is translated as a noun, which is pastor or a shepherd. It's a noun there. It's talking about a person. But 17 times, it is talking about the function that they do, the act of shepherding, which is caring, tending, feeding, protecting. Uh, all these things are done by the shepherd. 17 times, it's used as a verb. Uh, only once, it is used as a noun. Okay, so that's the gift. Uh, definition, the ability to shepherd, which is to guard, comfort, lead the flock, teach, instruct, and exhort the flock of God as, as their under-shepherd or as the under-shepherd of Christ. Okay, uh, so it is the ability to shepherd the flock of God. And shepherding includes guarding the flock from attacks, from false doctrines, from everything that will pull the, the flock down, comforting the flock, leading the flock from the front, teaching, that is feeding, instructing, and exhorting the flock as well all right um, so uh, if you want to see uh, okay anyway let me not get there uh, there's there's no time for that uh, ministry opportunities um, Bible teacher you can be a counselor a pastor or a shepherd an elder in the church and, and I'm using both pastor and elder synonymously and it is used synonymously in the New Testament uh, small group Bible study leader, cell group leader, spiritual growth leader, a mentor, all these people could uh, have the gift of shepherding. All right. Uh, so these are people who help other Christians who are wandering off from the Lord to come back into the fold and the fellowship of God. Um, they have, they can easily express warmth towards others. Um, there is a sensitivity uh, in them to listen to the needs of others and help them through those needs as well. Uh, they have the satisfaction in being there for people rather than merely doing things for people. So these are some of the characteristics. I wanted to go a little more in detail, but we don't have time for that. So I'm just, uh, just giving you uh, some basic uh, details here. Okay, so that is shepherding. Teaching, uh, given to us in uh, all the three passages that mention uh, about teaching, uh, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. Again, this goes along with shepherding. I said it's pastors and teachers or shepherds and teachers. That's where the gift of teaching comes there. 1 Corinthians 12 as well. 
the Greek word used there is the word, uh, it is uh, didaskalos, uh, which means the act of teaching or instruction. You are teaching or in instructing somebody. Definition, the ability to communicate the scriptures with clarity, with ease, with wisdom and efficiency. And people can, such people can explain God's word with understanding. They can give understanding uh, in their communication to the people of God. Usually such people are very clear in their communication. Uh, I don't have time to get into the characteristics, but just, just uh, some of the characteristics of such men and women is that uh, they have an emphasis on the accuracy of words, number one. Number two, uh, they delight in doing research and deep study of scripture in order to find more and more uh, jewels from the word, nuggets from the word. So they are joyous about it when they find and they find joy in teaching it to others as well. And usually for such people, there is some kind of a resistance when somebody else takes scripture out of context. Uh, so that is also one of the characteristics of uh, men and women who are who are endowed with the gift of teaching. Okay, Again, you could think about a Bible teacher, Sunday school teachers. Now, we usually think of teaching only in terms of the pulpit. No, a Sunday school teacher, cell group teacher, any age group, whatever you're teaching, if you're teaching, uh, check and find out if you have the gift of teaching. Um, it could range from, um, from anywhere to anywhere in terms of Sunday school or pulpit to seminary, Bible college professor, uh, shepherd again, small group Bible study leader, etc., etc. You could have authors as well. Uh, most, most teachers also write. So you could have authors as well in that. Administration, uh, very quickly. Um, you have Romans 12 and uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, it can also mean government, leadership, leading, ruling, management, organization, anything is okay for translation, okay? The Greek word is uh, proestemi. Pro means before, histomy means to stand, which means to stand before or to lead. Um, it is to set a place before or to set over. It also means to be the protector of people because you're leading from the front or a guardian or to give aid to people that you're leading from the front. In the New Testament, it is also used in the way of being the head of something or ruling something, directing, managing, conducting something. Uh, that's one, that is the way it is used in Romans 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, there is another word used, which is kubernesis, which means governing or government or administration. Definition, it is the ability to preside over something, govern, plan, organize, administer with wisdom, fairness, example, humility, confidence, ease, and efficiency. Basically, it is planning, organizing, administering, and helping people see things in a planned way and helping them do things as well in a planned way. A ministry opportunities, organizing and implementing church events, for example, conducting a camp. We need people who, uh, who do things from A to Z for the camp, right? Uh, it just doesn't uh, drop down from heaven. There are people working, organizing and implementing church events. Deacons usually have uh, this gift of administration. They, they are into... Uh, the physical arrangements of the church, finances and things like that. Elders also, some of them may have this gift of administration. Christian colleges need that. Seminaries need administrators. Organizations, ministry organizations need good administrators. Uh, Sunday school superintendent or principal or whatever word that we use 
they could have the gift of administration okay so this is uh, administration uh, it is uh, I think I think the one of the characteristics of this is the ability to see the overall picture of things even before something has started and clarify long-range goals and the ability to see God's work in that and see it to completion that's that's basically what administration is and it is also delegating people the right responsibilities and making sure that it is done administration exhortation only mentioned to us in Romans chapter 12 and uh, the other words that can be used for it are encouragement admonishment uh, counseling the Greek word is the word parakelio para means besides or to come alongside kelio means to call it means to call to one side as you come alongside that person. Um, it also means to admonish, to exhort, to urge one to pursue some course of conduct. The difference between this and comfort is, comfort looks at the past that something that uh, somebody has gone through and wants to comfort that person in retrospect. Somebody has had an illness or a sickness. So a person goes and he comforts them in retrospect because of what they went through in the past or what they've just gone through. But uh, an exhortation is prospective, which means we look to the future based on what they're doing now and we say, now, the way I see it is this, brother or sister, the way you're going is wrong and you need to change your course in the Lord. Otherwise, you could end up in danger. So it's a prospective thing. You're exhorting the person to change the course of uh, action or course that they've taken definition the ability to appeal for action drive home some specific truths from scripture and lead others to active realization of the will of god for their lives um, some people can even exhort others to pursue what the will of god is in their lives um, okay um, for example you know we we have uh, barnabas as an example right in the new testament because of whom uh, we have one book in the New Testament written by a man by the name of Mark, uh, the gospel itself. So, uh, so Barnabas helped Mark, encouragement, exhortation. Ministry opportunities, counselor, elder, etc., etc. I didn't want to list out all those things, but we know where that can be used, exhortation. The next one, gift of faith. While we are all called to have faith in everything that we do, and in fact, the Christian life is a life of faith. There is a gift of faith as well. 1 Corinthians 12 mentions that. And uh, the Greek word is the word pistis. That's from where my neighbor gets his name. His name is pisti. Uh, pistis means faith. Pisti might mean man of faith or trust. Uh, so definition, it is a spirit-given ability to see something that God wants done. And to have unwavering confidence that the Lord will do it regardless of seemingly insurmountable obstacles. Uh, this is a special gift. This is a gift of faith where when others are unable to see things, they already see what God may be doing and they pursue it and they end up doing it because of their faith. The gift of faith that the Lord has given them. It's the unwavering confidence in the Lord. Usually cross-cultural missionaries have this because sitting here they can't see anything in the other country but they go in faith they establish things and they see ahead of what God is doing and they with unwavering confidence pursue what God wants them to do as well 
in, uh, even in the face of seemingly insurmountable obstacles. Ministry opportunities, uh, established Bible schools, colleges, seminaries, pioneer missionary work, that's what I talked about, established Sunday schools in neglected areas, Bible studies in neglected areas, uh, and even lead others in dreaming big dreams for God, big vision for God based on their gifts, or even having a building project. You know, uh, for example, if you want to build a school and you know that the law wants you to build a school and, uh, and uh, let's, let's say it, it costs 10 crores, uh, a person with a gift of faith might be able to say, I don't have the money, but I know that since the Lord has called me to do, I will trust the Lord and he will, and he will bring this about in his own time. And he will pursue that and he will move forward as opposed to somebody who may not have that gift and say, well, it's 10 crores, so I just want to you know, drop this here. Okay, so uh, that's just an example. Uh, uh, don't uh, don't take that in all on all occasions to be true. Okay, so th that's the gift of faith. Next is giving. Uh, again, mentioned in Romans twelve eight. I just want to keep an eye on the time. Uh, giving is mentioned in Romans twelve. Uh, the Greek word is metadidomi, and the meta means among or from or with. Didomi means to give, meaning. To share out of what you have, to give out of what you have, or to impart something that you have. Definition, it is the capacity to give of substance to the work of the Lord or to the people of God consistently. That's important. Not just one-off, but consistently, liberally, which is joyfully, sacrificially, and with such wisdom and cheerfulness that others are encouraged and blessed by it. Not just the receiver, but somebody who knows that somebody is doing it will be encouraged to give more as well of themselves. Uh, we know several brothers who do that and several sisters who do that as well, right? The gift of giving. Ministry opportunities, giving to churches, giving to shepherds, evangelists, missionaries, mission organizations, uh, poor people. Uh, we, we have a whole wing, a whole team in church that caters to such things. Um, special projects like building funds, other needs that I talked about. Giving, the gift of giving. While all Christians are called to give, give cheerfully, give sacrificially, you can see where the gift of giving is when, by the way, some, some people give, right? Um, okay, the next one. The gift of helps or gift of service or gift of ministering, anything is okay. Mentioned in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Romans 12 uses the word diaconia again that's from where the word deacon comes we mentioned that it means service or ministering 1 corinthians 12 translate uh, translates the word helps uh, the word actually is uh, uh, antilemsis and uh, it means helps uh, anti means instead of uh, lambano means to take or lay hold of as to support which means helpful deeds given um, definition of it the extraordinary ability to serve faithfully behind the scenes in practical ways so as to assist in the work of the ministry. It is an assistance in the work of the ministry behind the scenes. It is to serve faithfully behind the scenes in practical ways. A good example is our setup team, right? Hospitality, having people at home, uh, doing some artwork, uh, design work, assisting teachers in Sunday school or preaching and teaching or in Bible colleges and things like that. Private intercession, nobody knows who you're praying for, 
but you're privately interceding for people, messaging people or emailing people personally, encouraging them, helping them, asking for help, preparing the elements of the Lord's Supper before everybody comes, uh, getting things ready, uh, serving after people leave, you know, uh, just dismantling everything after an event, uh, things like that, deacons, kitchen ministry, you know, all these things are helps or service. Um, these are some of the ministry opportunities. I wish I could go into some of the characteristics, but we don't have time. Showing mercy, the gift of showing mercy. Uh, again, while all of us as Christians are called to be merciful and to show mercy, uh, this is a special gift. Uh, the, the Greek word is the word eleo, uh, which means to have mercy, to have pity on somebody. Definition, the ability to demonstrate sympathy, understanding, compassion, patience and sensitivity towards those who suffer or undergo periods of uh, periods of severe pressure and emotional anxiety now actually these people are looking out for such people and we've seen that in the church they're looking out for people who are distressed who are away from others aloof and uh, perhaps struggling on the inside and they look out for such people they go this is the gift of showing mercy to sympathize to understand to to put themselves in the shoes of the other person who's struggling. Ministry opportunities, caring for and visiting new mothers, sending them food when they can't cook. Uh, and uh, uh, praise God, our church is an epitome of that. Uh, the sick, visiting the sick people, afflicted people, orphans, widows, bereaved people, visiting prisons, hospitals, etc., etc. This is the gift of showing mercy. Um, it is... Uh, it, is, it also works the other way, not just, uh, not just when people are distressed, but when people are joyous, people who have the gift of showing mercy are also joyous with them. They mourn with those who mourn. They are joyous with those who are joyous as well. Uh, next one. Uh, we get into some sign gifts here. Uh, the gift of discernments of spirit, uh, discernment of spirits or gift of distinguishing of spirits. Now, hear me carefully, please. It's mentioned only once in the New Testament, which is in 1 Corinthians 12. And uh, the Greek word for discerning or distinguishing is the word uh, diacrisis. It means the ability to distinguish or to differentiate between spirits. Uh, it is actually an act of judgment. Uh, okay, the definition is this. It is the God-given ability, it's actually a supernatural ability, to judge an oral declaration from someone claiming to be a prophet and see whether he is from a divine source or a human source or a demonic source. It is a special God-given ability. And again, it's a sign gift. It was in the first century. The apostles used it. They needed to distinguish uh, between what is the source of this declaration that they are claiming to declare in the name of God. Paul did that, right? Um, so it is a God-given ability to judge an oral declaration from someone claiming to be a prophet to see whether it's from a divine source or from the flesh, human source, or even from a demonic source. Now that is for the first century. It is an apostolic gift. And we said the apostles are not there anymore. And so therefore that gift has stopped. But we can have an extension of it in a loose sense, how it works in the church today. This gift, in an extended sense, could help people in revealing false motives in others. Um, recently, I was talking to one of the brothers, and he asked me, Revanta, 
how, how does one discern whether somebody has a right motive or wrong motive? We can't because we are completely we can't because we are not omniscient, we're not God. But I think the, the gift of discernment that people have, discernment of spirits, they are able to better distinguish if somebody's motive is from the flesh or if somebody really wants to glorify God in what they're doing. So it is also in discerning spiritual truth from spiritual error in somebody's teaching. If somebody is teaching some error, they're immediately able to discern, oh, that's wrong. Uh, that's not scriptural. Uh, discerning uh, proposed course of action from, uh, from divine or human source. So uh, if something that somebody does, uh, they want to see the source of it and they want to see where that is from, these people can easily identify to see if they are from a divine source, which is whether God has asked them to do it or humans uh, have asked them to do it or they are acting in flesh. You know, it's, it's very easy for us to come and spiritualize everything nowadays, right? The Lord told me this, I prayed about this and all of that. But I think, I think these people who have it are able to better realize and see through what people are saying and see whether somebody is actually speaking the truth, that they are actually... Uh, that they actually have received something from God or they are merely acting in the flesh. Okay, uh, miracles. Again, another sign gift that uh, is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 in three different verses. The Greek word is the word dynamis. That's where you get the English word dynamite, which means power or miracle or wonder. And not just an ordinary, you know, exhibition of power. It's real power of God exhibited. And we read the New Testament, the book of Acts especially, we see what is happening there, right? It's translated usually in the New Testament as miracles, but also sometimes signs and wonders. John in his gospel uses the word as signs. Uh, that's a different, slightly different word, but uh, he's meaning miracles there, okay? It's used as power some 80 times in the New Testament. Uh, miracles. It is the God-given ability to perform an event of supernatural power, uh, palpable to the senses, you can clearly see that there is a miracle that happened, accompanying the servant of the Lord to authenticate the divine commission. Now, this is important. Uh, it is given to authenticate the divine commission. And we see uh, in Hebrews chapter 2 already, by the time the, the writer of the Hebrews was writing Hebrews chapter 2, which could be around 64 or 65 AD, he is already using those signs and wonders and miracles as being of the past. In the Greek, we call it an aorist tense, which means a past perfect tense. It's already happened. It's not continuing any longer. By 65 AD itself, uh, the writer of the Hebrews used that, used that tense to talk about miracles, signs, and wonders. Why? Because it is to authenticate the gospel and the messengers of the Lord, the apostles and the prophets who were the foundation of the church. Okay. How does it work in church today? Uh, the gift has stopped being operative. We don't have the gift of miracles. We don't see anybody like uh, what happened in Acts chapter 3. For example, uh, Peter and John were going to the temple and you have uh, a crippled man sitting at the temple gate, beautiful, and he expects to get some gold or silver from them. And Peter looks at him and says, gold or silver I don't have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the Bible says he ran into the temple. No physiotherapy needed, uh, no medicines needed. It's immediate, it's irreversible. He just ran into the temple. That is the gift of uh, miracles or the gift of healing as well, almost similar. 
That you don't see happening today. You don't see anybody coming on Sunday morning and saying to me, Raven, your fever be healed and it's healed. It doesn't, you don't, you don't see that because the gift has stopped working, although God continues to do miracles in his own sovereignty. But that's not the gift. It is the miracles, mirac miraculous phenomenon that God wants to do in his sovereignty to accomplish his own purposes. But the gift of miracles is uh, confined to the apostles and the prophets of the first century. Similar thing with healings. Uh, the Greek word is the word yama, which means healing or a physical restoration. Um, definition, it is a supernatural ability uh, to miraculously cure any illness, restore health, and even raise the dead apart from the natural means. You know, Paul, Paul raised uh, Eutychus, right, from the dead. Uh, Peter raised um, uh, Dorcas from the dead. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ raised three people from the dead. So this is the gift of healings. It, it is a miraculous uh, ability to heal. Uh, we don't have that right now again. The gift, has, the gift has stopped being operative while God continues to heal people, right? Um, one thing that we need to distinguish very quickly here, it's one o'clock, is between the gift of healing and interceding for healing. These are two different things. We're all called to intercede for healing and that's why every day with prayer partners and even privately, we intercede for the nation. We intercede for those who, who are going through corona. We intercede for people who are struggling with uh, various ailments. It's the right thing to do. People did that in the New Testament, and we ought to do that in the New Testament, uh, in, in these times as well, because we are exhorted in the New Testament to intercede for people's healings. Now, whether the healing comes or not is, is left to the Lord and His purposes, but we ought to intercede for people. That is different from the gift of healing, which is what I talked about from... Uh, as an illustration from Acts chapter 3. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the man got up and went into the temple. A man crippled from birth. That's the gift of healing. And that is confined to the first century, the apostles and the prophets, the signs and wonders that we talked about, mentioned in um, Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, and we also see in Ephesians 2 that the, that the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. There is no apostolic succession. There's only one apostolic succession that we see in the New Testament, and that is in, in the book of Acts, where Judas, who went to where he had to go to, the son of perdition, was replaced once by Matthias. Other than that, you don't see any uh, apostolic succession. So we don't have any apostles, the lineage of apostles coming into the 21st century. It is confined to the first century. Okay, uh, next one, the gift of speaking different kinds of tongues. Well, this is also a miraculous gift. It is given to us in 1 Corinthians 12 in all those verses. The Greek word is the word glossa, which means a tongue or a language. It's glossa always means a language that can be understood. I am speaking in a language that you can understand. If I spoke Spanish, perhaps you may not understand. So that's, it's a language, right? Uh, we're not talking about gibberish here. It's a language. Definition, uh, it is a God-given ability to speak divine revelation in a foreign language unknown by the speaker to others in their language as a sign that a gifted interpreter can translate to edify the church. Uh, it is a God-given ability to a man. It is a revelatory gift where he speaks divine revelation in a language that he hadn't learned hitherto. Um, that's what happened in the book of Acts, right? Uh, in Acts chapter 2, each one started speaking in the tongue of the listener. Uh, and, and they were from all over the Roman Empire. They came 
to celebrate the Feast of the Pentecost. And they all heard in their own tongue these men declaring the wonders of God. And that's why they came together and said, what phenomenon is this? And Peter gets up and he starts explaining from Joel chapter 2. And then he says, you must repent. And 3,000 people were added to the church. Okay. Again, that is confined to the first century. The gift of tongues, the gift has stopped being operative in the church. While God may use many languages miraculously according to his purposes. There might be eruptions of languages here and there, but it's not the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues had a specific purpose which was confined to the first century. It stopped being operative after that. We did a whole session uh, in last uh, last March, April. You may go back and listen to the recording, but uh, in another context as well, you can, you can ask questions and we can clarify that. All right. Um, one more thing uh, I, I wanted to mention about tongues is, uh, although people do say that, you know, there can be eruptions of languages here and there. Personally, I've not come across in my own life. While I do realize in saying that, my experience is limited. There might be something like that. Um, interpretation of tongues. Now, it goes hand in hand with the speaking of tongues. Uh, the, the Greek word is a menu, which means to explain or interpret and translate usually what's been spoken in a tongue that was not learned by the speaker. So the definition, it is a God-given ability to receive by divine revelation and to declare the language in the language of the church, the translation of a message in tongues. For example, in the first century, uh, in the church of Corinth, perhaps, just, just whimsically an example, if somebody came and spoke in, um, uh, uh, say, suppose German, which was not common in those days, uh, I'm not even sure that language existed in the first century, but let's just say German, um, it could have been translated by divine revelation by somebody who had the gift of interpretation of tongues into the common language there, which is Greek in Corinth, in Koine Greek. And the other, the rest of the church could have understood what it was. Um, how it works in the church today, the gift has stopped being operative, while God can use many such miraculous phenomena again. Okay, we, we've been saying this. We come to the end of all these gifts and I'll just take some 10 minutes, this is important please, uh, uh, and please bear with me. I know uh, we're well past the time, but I think we wanted to cover this today uh, uh, with, with apologies. Paul reminds us this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? I want each one of us sincerely to ask this question of ourselves. And I'm asking this question of myself, you know, even as I speak to you here. Is there anything that I possess that I did not receive? No, there isn't anything. You don't have anything. You have no gift, nothing that you did not receive from the Lord. If then you and I have received everything, why do we boast about it as though we generated it ourselves? A good question to ask ourselves. Gifts are all given by the Lord to us out of his grace for the service of his body to serve the body there is nothing that we have that we did not receive and therefore let's not boast about it I ought not to boast about it you ought not to boast about it because we didn't work for it we just received it lastly I want to exhort each one of us and I, I want to sincerely say this to myself as I say this to you, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, uh, verses 20, to, uh, 20 through 22. Let me read for that. Let me read that for you in its entirety. 
uh, and then I'll explain the passage very briefly and I'll be through in the next five minutes. Listen, please. Paul says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels uh, of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the work of the master, ready for every good work. And therefore, the exhortation, it's a two-pronged one. Flee youthful passions, one side. On the other side, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Basically, he's talking about the church. Now, let me explain this and listen to this very carefully, please. In a great house, Paul is comparing the church with a house, the household of God. Uh, it's a great house. It belongs to somebody rich. God is somebody who owns everything. It's a great house. And that's why there are vessels of gold and silver in that house. So the vessels there in the house are distinguished based on two, two things. Number one, they are distinguished based on the metal they are made of. And also based on the purposes because of the metal they are made of. There are gold and silver plates and there are wooden clay plates. Now we all know uh, we have plates in our home that we use for our everyday uses. We eat out of that. We eat from those plates. But if a guest comes to our home, somebody honorable, what do we do? We don't, we don't use those plates. We bring out of the shelf some nice dinnerware and then we place them on, on, the, on the table, right? So there are some vessels that are used for honorable use, some that are used for dishonorable use. Now, uh, a dustbin is used for a dishonorable use. Uh, we don't, when our friend comes home, we don't take the dustbin and put food in the in the dustbin and place it on the table for our friend to eat from. That'll be the end of our friendship because there are some there are some vessels for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. And the Lord is saying this. There are some Christians in the church who are gold and silver Christians and there are others who are wooden clay Christians. And what is that based on? It is based on the fact that some are living dishonorable lives, sinful lives. And here is the human responsibility in sanctification. Paul is exhorting T Timothy. You don't have to stay where you are. You don't have to remain a wooden clay Christian. I don't have to remain a wooden clay Christian. I may struggle with anger. I don't have to remain there. My marriage may have problems. I don't have to remain there. What I can do is, here is what it says. If anyone cleanses himself from all that is dishonorable, all that is sinful we can become a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy useful to the master of the house ready for every good work my dear brothers and sisters let's be honest some of us would rather be known for what we do than what we are isn't it we would rather be known for what we do than what we are Gifts, flashy ones, all those are wonderful. But what needs to be worked on is on the heart. And that's when the Lord can use us as somebody who's useful to the master of the house for an honorable use. Otherwise, you and I will be using our gifts in a fleshly manner that may not bless the church much. So what do we need to do? 
flee youthful passions. Now, youthful passions don't include merely uh, sexual lusts and things like that. They include anger. They include hot-headedness. They include the desire to be control of our little corner of the universe. I want to be in control of everything. Flee youthful passions, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Not just alone, but along with all the body of Christ, all those who call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart. When we do that, the gifts can be used to build up the body of Christ, and the beauty of the gift can be seen through our character display as well. And when these two come together, it can be a powerful building block for the body of Christ. Thank you, dear church, for your patience, and I hope this was beneficial to you. It's my prayer that all of us will be able to identify our gifts and will be able to serve the Lord in building up the body of Christ. Now, what we'll do is we'll send out a survey uh, later in the day, um, and that survey will have about, let me see, it has 75 questions, okay? Uh, what you need to do is select one response that best characterizes you. Now, this is not an exam, so there's no right or wrong answers. Don't ask somebody else to affirm anything. Usually, the first answer that comes to comes to your mind is most probably the right thing. So don't think too much in answering this, okay? Don't spend too much on each one. Just write down, score those things. Uh, the instructions are very clear there. And uh, keep it uh, in the week prayerfully. And next week, the elders will, uh, will do the breakout sessions, and they will help us uh, with... Uh, with identifying these gifts and also where they can be used in the assembly of God's people. But meanwhile, as you identify your gifts through these things, write down how you want to serve in CBF. What are the avenues that you want to serve in CBF? If the avenue doesn't already exist, you can definitely come to the elders and suggest that I would like to start something like this and we, uh, and we will take that seriously as well. So that survey will be sent out and um, thank you, thank you brothers and sisters. Bye-bye.